Well, it just instantly got quiet there all of a sudden. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. And, uh, we just love what God's doing at Remnant, and uh, we're in a very cool time as a church. Uh, and we've been studying together what God says about the end times, what God has said that will happen in the future. And when we've really spent, I think, 12 weeks talking about how our world is, is being prepared for this climactic end time event. And then we've been walking through the book of Revelation, and we've talked about how it is a single revelation. It's, it's showing us Jesus Christ, and it's going to show us Jesus victorious over sin. And that's what happens to many of us in our lives. We, we begin to start feeling prompted to sort of explore these things of God. And maybe some of us grew up in a church and walked away. Maybe we've always grown up in a church. But at some point in our lives, this experience with God has to become real for us. And so maybe it's circumstances of life. Maybe it's just a maturity thing. Whatever it is, we got to a point where we just had to know. And we come into a place like this and we read about the word and we begin to understand that this is far more than just some kind of book of rules or some religion to follow. What we discovered was is that we were falling in love with God who created us. And that as we learn more about him, he, he developed a relationship with us. And we couldn't really explain it because inside we began changing. And we began being transformed. The more we learn, the more we're transformed. The more we surrender, the more we find ourselves acting more like this incredible Jesus. So every week we just come back and we just try to learn more and we surrender more and we leave changed. And, and, and we're just so grateful for that that we lift up our praises to Jesus for what he's done for us. And, and maybe you're on your journey and you're not there yet and you think this whole thing's crazy. That is perfectly cool. We've all been there. But I just want to encourage you to continue to study, continue to look, continue to come back and find out about this God that has changed so many lives. We're well into the book of Revelation now. We've gone through seven uh, seal judgments. We've gone through six now trumpet judgments. Every judgment is God essentially reaching out saying, will you please love me now? Please don't make me release the next judgment on you. Will you please come back to me now? And we learned how many of these judgments are similar to what happened to the, to the Egyptians when they wouldn't let the Israelites go and how they hardened their hearts. And it wasn't that God hardened their heart. It's just that they kept resisting so much that they literally tightened the knot of their heart to the point that they weren't receptive anymore. God didn't harden their hearts. They just kept resisting to the point they became that way. And now we're at this moment in between these judgments that God is laying out. And John, the Apostle John, who is telling us what God has revealed to him, has stopped. And he's going to tell us about the key players of the last half of the tribulation. There's a seven-year tribulation period. The last three and a half years are going to be all hell on earth. Jesus says they're going to be the worst ever. And what happens now is, John, before we get into these last seven, what are called bold judgments, John stops and he says, okay, let me, let me sort of lay the players out for you. Let me, let me tell you who's going to be kind of in this process in the next three and a half years of this tribulation. It's kind of that um, moment where, where they say, okay, let's get ready to rumble. Okay, the fight is about to happen. And tonight we're going to talk about how in this corner is so-and-so, and in this corner is somebody else. And that's really where John's going to have us tonight as he begins to teach us. 
So if you would, join me in Revelation chapter 11. I'll read it to you and it'll be on the screen. And we're going to go through quite a bit of scripture tonight. So fortunately, it'll all be on the screen for you. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Wow. That's new information. What temple? I went to Israel last summer. There's no temple there. There used to be a temple. There was a first temple of, you know, years ago, and then Solomon built the second temple, and then Herod upgraded the second temple. But in A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was wiped out. Now we read in Revelation that in the end times, John is told, go measure the temple. Hmm. That suggests that perhaps part of the end time event is that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And we have John measuring not only the temple, and by the way, the biblical term of measuring something means to take ownership of or to clarify and define who's ruler over that area. So he's told basically to go establish the rule over the temple. We know that Jesus said that in the middle part of the tribulation, there will be an abomination of desolation in the holy of holies of the temple. Now we have John measuring the temple. And so we learn from these different passages that at some point during the end times, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Because we know that the Antichrist, the middle portion of that, is going to go in and claim himself to be God. Verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city, that's Jerusalem, for 42. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. We have our first person that we're going to look at tonight, or people who are going to play a key role going forward in the end times event. Jesus says, I'm going to send two witnesses. Hmm. And they're going to prophesy for 1,260 days. And based on a 360-day Jewish calendar, that's, guess what, three and a half years. So these two witnesses are going to come to earth. They are sent by God. They are God's messengers. They are God's prophet for this time. And they are going to prophesy for three and a half years. Now, in ancient Greek, every term here implies male or masculine. These will be two men. They will arrive, and they will be there sent by God to prophesy. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. Now, these witnesses have a unique continual empowering from the Holy Spirit. Their voice is going to be strong. There's going to be fire coming out of their mouth through Scripture and, and through truth. And he talks about olive trees and oil lamps. That's weird, right? I mean, don't you hate that when they just put stuff in there and you're like, why is that there? Remember in the Bible, nothing's wasted. Every word in the Bible is there because God said it should be there. Okay? And we talked about how Revelation is really not that complicated if you've read the other 65 books, that there's nothing new introduced in Revelation that wasn't introduced before. And this is simply a, a narrative theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And all these things are coming together in Revelation to completion, just as God said they would. It turns out in Zechariah, I'll take you to Zechariah 4. 
And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these? Good question. Then the angel who talked to me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And he said, no, my Lord, I don't know. And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of olive trees, which are beside the golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So way back in Zechariah, he spoke of two who would come, who were the anointed ones who would speak for God. Now we see those anointed ones being sent by God, the two witnesses in the end times to do exactly that. And Jesus is referencing to John that this is olive. It's sort of a symbol of one who comes out of the Jewish people, one who is pure, one who anoints the world. That's the symbolism that he's giving. But he's reminding them that Zechariah said these people would be here. They are my anointed ones who would speak for me. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the day of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These guys have power. Now, they don't tell us who these two witnesses are. If God wanted us to know for sure, he would have put it in. It would be important. We don't know who these two witnesses are. That gives us tons of time to speculate. Who could these people be? These are two witnesses sent by God. We have some hints. We've seen a prophet in the past who could hold off rain. If you remember, Elijah on Mount Carmel had the power to keep it from raining, and he kept it from raining. So a lot of people have said, wow, that sounds like, that sounds like Elijah. We also know that a prophet Moses had the power to turn water into other things. And so people are like, well, wait a minute. Moses turned water into blood. Elijah basically stopped the rain from coming. Maybe these two people who are going to be the witnesses during end times in Jerusalem are going to be Moses and Elijah coming back to earth. Well, it turns out that most people are pretty clear on Elijah. Most people believe that one of these two actually will be Elijah for, for many reasons. Elijah is one of the few people that never died. If you remember, Elijah was taken up in a chariot. He never really experienced death. Elijah and Moses were both appearing to Jesus at the transfiguration, if you remember. So a lot of people have said, okay, well, this must be Elijah because he basically is prophesied in Malachi to return before the end of the age. He has this unique conference with Jesus on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. He never died. He was swept to heaven in a chariot. And so most people believe that one of these witnesses is likely Elijah. Now we continue to learn about these witnesses. And we begin to understand that even back in Genesis, 
When, when Adam was born, remember that God's original plan was that nobody would die, right? I mean, God's original plan was we would be here forever. We would be in a perfect relationship with him. But when sin came in, death entered our world. And what we see in Genesis, there's a part of Genesis where it basically walks us through the graveyard of Genesis. And we see that Adam, for instance, lived 930 years and his son, Seth, lived 912 years. And we get all the way down after we start looking at all these people who lived and we see that each generation is getting shorter and shorter. And then we get to Genesis 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Whoa. That's odd. That suggests that Enoch didn't die either. Now we've got two people who have been on earth who didn't die. Elijah and Enoch. Well, it says God took him. What does that really mean? Does that mean that God just took him? Does that mean that he died? What what does it mean? Well, we talk all the time about how Scripture interprets Scripture. So we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God has taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So we have two people who have basically been taken up to heaven, neither of which died. And some say that these two witnesses have to be Enoch and Elijah because everybody's under the curse of sin and everybody has to die for sin. Some believe that those two witnesses, based on Hebrews 9.27, it says that it's appointed for man to die once. And so they say, look, these two witnesses have to come back to earth. They have to be killed and they have to die. Well, the problem is they're misinterpreting Hebrews 27 because it's not a directive. It's a principle. And truthfully, every person that's raptured doesn't die. So it's not that just because these two happen to have been taken up to heaven, they have to be the two witnesses. But that's the reason why many people believe it's those two. At the same time, though, Moses and Elijah have been seen hanging out together, right? I mean, they were with Jesus on the top of the mountain. They were speaking with him. They have a role in the story. And truthfully, they were the two great prophets of the Bible. If you think about it, Moses brought the written law. And Elijah was known as the great oral prophet who gave God's spoken word to the people. These are two big players. Many think Moses is likely the other witness because his ministry is like this. He has a special ability to uh, uh, turn water into blood. At least God uses him for that. Now, Now, I happen to think that the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. And the reason I think that, just my opinion, there's nothing based on this, but we're about to go into the biggest battle of all time. And I just believe God is going to send heavyweights. We don't know much about Enoch, okay? But we know about Elijah, and we know about Moses, and we know who he's going up against. So my guess is that God is going to send big-time players for this big-time event. It doesn't really matter. These two witnesses are going to witness for God to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they are going to be protected by God, and the Antichrist is going to want to kill them, but he can't. Okay? So it doesn't really matter who they are. They are sent by God to speak truth during the tribulation. 
Verse 7, and when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Well, we know the beast from the bottomless pit is Satan. We know the great city is Jerusalem. Now, at this point, Jerusalem, although we consider it a great holy city, will be completely corrupt. It'll be a city that is run by the Antichrist. That's why it's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. It's a city where the Antichrist is now dominating. These two are going to be savagely killed. Their bodies are going to be gazed upon by the entire world all at the same time. And they will be given the ultimate Middle Eastern insult. They will not be buried. They will be allowed to stay in the streets. It doesn't matter whether you are Jewish or Muslim. If you are not given a burial quickly within the time of your death, it is the ultimate insult for you. If you go back and read commentaries, this is kind of interesting to do. You go back and read commentaries, uh, old commentaries, when they try to figure out how the entire world is going to see these two at the same time. I mean, they didn't know when they wrote the commentaries back in the 1800s that, that somehow we're going to have iPhones and we're going to have wireless Internet and we're all going to be looking at it as it happens. They had all kinds of ideas about pictures in the sky and how God would give us all the same dream at the same time. They're trying to figure out how can the entire world, all nations, everybody see this event at once? Well, the answer is CNN and Fox News. That's the answer. And we're going to see it and people are going to see it. People are going to be watching these bodies. They'll probably have a webcam on them. And they'll be doing all kinds of things to disgrace these two witnesses. Remember, at this point, the people who are on earth have sworn allegiance to the Antichrist. They see these two as representative of the God that's brought all the plagues and all the problems on the earth. And now they finally have a victory that they can celebrate. The Antichrist himself has killed the two witnesses of God that were basically completely protected for three and a half years. So this is a big event around the world. Verse 10, and those who will dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Because the two prophets who've been a torment to those who dwell on the earth, this is going to be like Christmas for them. They're going to be celebrating the death of these two witnesses by giving presents to each other and by dancing in the streets and by celebrating. And then God crashes their party. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them. And they stood up on their feet, and this is the understatement of the Bible, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven say, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the, behold, the third woe is to come.
Now imagine how many times this is going to be replayed in slow motion on YouTube and on Fox News and on CNN. These guys, they're dead. They've been tortured. Their bodies have been mutilated. And all of a sudden they stand up and dust themselves off, look around, and they hear, everybody hears a voice, come up here. Okay? This is like a major thing. And then we get this warning. That was the second woe. The third is yet to come. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was open and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, another earthquake, and heavy hail. Think about how many earthquakes have hit this planet during this time of tribulation. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Think how long they've waited to say that. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begin to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Do you remember back in Revelation when the people that had been martyred asked God, How long? How long do we have to wait until you're going to bring justice for what's happened to us? We were martyred for you. And he says, Just a little longer. Okay? Now, a little longer's up. The time is done. It's time for God to bring justice to the world, to right every wrong. And these in heaven, they're falling on their faces going, oh, God Almighty, it's time. Remember, the seventh seal brought profound silence in heaven and earth. And now the seventh trumpet is going to bring praising of the Lord and Christ that he will reign forever and ever. Verse 19, then God's temple was open and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning. Remember the Holy of Holies? Do you remember when Jesus died and he resurrected that the curtain was torn in two and the Holy of Holies was open so that man would have access to God? As incredible as the temple and the Holy of Holies is on earth, it is simply a replica of the real deal in heaven. The tabernacle that Moses built is a copy of God's temple, God's holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant that's in heaven. That's why God was so specific about how it had to be exactly built to basically size, detail, the wood that's used, everything that's wood, because it is a replica of the real deal. And now in Revelation, we are allowed, John is allowed to look in heaven and see heaven is open and I see the Ark of the Covenant. Within the temple, the real one, not the one on earth, the real one. And then John gives more information, which we've already covered, which I won't cover again. He goes from this, I see in the sky, heaven and the temple. And then he begins to talk about signs that will occur in the heavens. Signs that we've talked about in Revelation chapter 12 that we will see that will tell us that we're in the end times. And then he tells us about this weird event that happens in heaven. Remember, John is in between judgments. The seventh trumpet is now sounded. We're waiting for the seven bowls, but he's filling us in on all the details. And he says, you know what happened? There's a war in heaven. 
He says, look, a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. We're at the midpoint of the tribulation. God begins to turn the tide against Satan. Remember, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist is looking pretty good. He's got peace with Israel. The world's starting to worship him. He controls the economy. He controls religion. He's beginning to be worshipped by people. It's going pretty well. But then God says, okay, it's time. Satan is going to lose a battle in heaven, and then he's going to lose his battle on earth. Now, Jesus talked at one point in Luke chapter 10. Here's what he said. Lord, the the people came back to him as disciples. Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, that makes us wonder, when, when did that happen? We haven't read about that. Jesus says, look, I was there. I saw him fall. He fell like lightning from heaven. This refers to the first fall of Satan, when Satan decided he wanted to be God. And this statement in Revelation points to what happens the second time when Satan is pulled out of heaven not to return again. You see, Satan rebelled against God initially. He he was one of God's chosen angels. And he rebelled against God, and as a result, he was cast out of heaven to the Garden of Eden. Since he couldn't overcome God, he focused his energy and effort on destroying the people that God loved who were created in his image. This is the beginning of sin. And since that moment, Satan has been a major character in the story from that moment forward. He's not always center stage, but he's always hanging out in the wings and influencing what man is doing. He is the one that has deceived many of us to walk away from God. The entire story of salvation is the story of defeating Satan and restoring the things the way God intended them to be. Ultimately, God is going to have to defeat Satan permanently to set things right. And in Revelation, that's what we begin to see happen. Ezekiel, talking about this angel who fell, said this. Son of man, say to him, thus says the Lord your God, you are the signet of perfection. You are full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed, guarded cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You can hear the pain in God's voice. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. 
In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Isaiah, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, the son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, how you laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like God. But you are brought down to Sheol. To the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each one in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. What he's saying is, look, you wanted to take my two witnesses and have them not get a burial? Guess where you're headed? You're headed to a place where you won't be buried either. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. You see, what we learn here is that angels are created beings. They're not human, they're angels. And they have free will, and they can choose to follow God or not. And Satan was the most privileged angel in heaven, and he decided that he would not follow God. And in the process, he deceived a third of the other angels to come with him. We now know those fallen angels as demons. They have been judged by God. They have been defeated by God. They have been cast down to earth. They have a limited time to influence you and me because they have studied Revelation better than we have. And they know what's coming. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our Lord. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Now, now this is something that really bothers a lot of us. When Satan had his first fall to earth, he still allowed access back to heaven. Okay? In fact, we read in Job and other books that he's actually before the throne of God in heaven accusing us day and night. That's his function. And so what we remember when we saw the temple in Revelation, we saw this incredible temple. Well, Satan is there basically accusing us. And right now at this moment, Satan is in front of the throne of God, accusing all of us who follow him of sin and of things. And Jesus is at the right hand of God as our attorney in a sense. And that's going on all the time in the spiritual realm. Satan is there day and night pointing fingers at us, blaming us, pointing at us. And then there becomes a point in Revelation when God says, enough, no more. And a battle starts in heaven. Satan is defeated. And from that point on, he is cast to earth. The last three and a half years of the tribulation. 
the time that Jesus said would be the worst anybody's ever seen. And the reason is, we read it right there, the accuser who accuses us day and night has been thrown down. He's been conquered, but his time is limited. So he is basically a cornered animal attacking during the last three and a half years. He can't attack the anointed ones because they are covered with God's seal. But he attacks as much as he can anybody who follows Jesus. But from this point on, he no longer has access to heaven. He's been cast out of heaven. Now, Satan's power is scary to us, not because he's that powerful, but because we know he's kind of cornered and he has a short time. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. Well, we've seen this woman before. We've seen the male child before. This woman is Israel child or those who follow. Satan, after being cast to earth, knowing his time is short, turns his wrath towards Israel, who gave birth to the Messiah. We're going to see, and we've talked about it already, that in the last half of the tribulation, Satan brings the full force of his wrath against the Jewish people. The focus is on Jerusalem. The three and a half years at the end. Remember, we ended, we ended the Gentile period and now we're heading to the end times in Jerusalem. Everything is about the Jewish people and whether they're going to accept Jesus as the Messiah or accept the Antichrist as their false Messiah. Why does Satan attack the Jewish people? Well, you may have noticed this has happened throughout all of history. The Jewish people have always been under persecution. Why? Well, it's not so much in and of anything they've done. It's that God chose to make them his chosen people. And because of that, the Satan who hates everything of God has had the Jewish people under persecution since the moment God basically told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your offspring. Satan knows that if he could destroy the Jewish people, then he could have a chance to destroy the Messiah. So after Jesus is born, Satan works with Herod to get Herod to kill all the kids in Bethlehem. Oops, he went to Egypt for three and a half years. We missed him. When the Jewish people were um, first a nation, Satan said, well, I'm going to send 73 of them into slavery down in Egypt. That'll kill them. That'll stop the Messiah. But instead, they grow to a nation of millions and God leads them out. Satan has always been trying to stop the messianic line. It's part of his program to defeat God. But the woman, that would be Israel, was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she's to be nourished for time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. Eagle's wings are an emblem of the Exodus deliverance and another way of connecting these people to protection of God. Israel is saved supernaturally by God. He will take them into the wilderness. He will protect them from the Antichrist and from Satan who want to destroy them. Many people believe that that place is in Petra, south of the Dead Sea. In fact, you may not know this, but there are Christians who have stocked Petra with, <laughs> with uh, tracts in Hebrew and food and Bibles because they're waiting for this day when all these Jewish people are going to come there during the tribulation and they will have the information for them to learn about Jesus in the last days. 
The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away in a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened his mouth, swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. He's going to make war in the final three and a half years with anybody who's undecided, anybody who's trying to follow Jesus. And then we begin to hear about this antichrist, this beast. Revelation 13, 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns or diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. Now, many people today love the ocean and they love the sea. But in ancient times, in Jewish times, they were very fearful of the sea. And the sea always represented deep, horrible things. In fact, Israel at that time under Solomon actually had a navy, but nobody would serve in it because they were too afraid of the water. So they made the people from Tyre fulfill their navy obligations. So the ocean is something that to them was something that was just dark and evil. They saw it as chaotic and this beast comes up out of the sea. And because he's called a beast and not a dragon, we know he's not the Antichrist. He, he's a beast. He's, he's represented as a beast. He is someone who comes during the 70th week. Remember Daniel told us that after 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off. And the people of the prince to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It'll come like a flood and the end will be a war. Desolations are decreased. The Antichrist is going to set up an abomination in the temple, and Paul tells us about it. 2 Thessalonians, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now this is what's really important. This dragon, this, this beast is going to come up out of the sea. He's going to declare himself to be God. The prefix anti means opposite of or instead of. Okay, This person, this human, is going to be the anti-Christ. The opposite of Christ or the substitute of Christ. Okay, Either against or in place of. The word can mean either way. We tend to think of the opposite of Christ. Okay? That, that if Jesus is loving, he'll be evil. If Jesus is doing good, he's going to do bad. But as much as we think that way, the Bible tells us the Antichrist is going to be a pretty engaging fella. People are going to want to follow him. His character and personality isn't going to be ugly and repulsive. It's actually going to be attractable. People are going to see him as an incredible person. And as much as he speaks lies, he does it with conviction. And he's deceiving people to follow him. He's going to be more of an instead of Jesus. He'll look wonderful and charming and successful. He'll be the ultimate winner. Everything he does, he'll win. He'll appear as an angel of light. In fact, the Bible says that the Antichrist will be a satanic messiah instead of the true messiah. So the idea that this Antichrist is going to be visible as somebody who's just everything Jesus isn't, that's not the image. 
What he's offering is an alternative to Jesus that's an instead of. Okay? And what we're going to see is everything Satan does is to try to mimic what God's already done. Satan wants to replace God, so he's going to mimic God. In fact, in Daniel, we see that God gave to Jesus three things. I saw the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. This is Jesus to the Father. And he said to him, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations, languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away and a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Now notice, here we are in Revelation, and now Satan is going to turn to the Antichrist and do the same thing. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like a bear's, and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power, his throne, and his authority. Okay, Satan is going to give to the Antichrist the same thing that the Father gave to Jesus. Okay, He's going to give him power, authority, and position. And what we're going to see in Revelation is that Satan is going to create this grotesque parody of the Trinity. He's going to try to create his own Trinity around him. One of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? This antichrist, we're going to learn, is going to have a fatal head wound. He is going to die. Fatal means fatal. Okay? Doesn't mean injured, right? If you're injured, you didn't have a fatal wound. He's going to have a fatal wound. He is going to die. The world is going to freak out. Our Messiah is dead. Our Antichrist, they won't call him that. He's the one that they're worshiping. He's dead. What are we going to do? But somehow this wound is healed. Does that sound like anybody you know? Maybe somebody who's killed and then comes back to life and what we're seeing is he's mimicking what Jesus did and he's going to deceive the world and they're going to buy it the Bible says who is like the beast and who's able to make war with him the people are going to be amazed at the power of this man he is literally going to stand up from death and say I am God and you have to worship me now and he's going to go into the temple of temp- or the Holy of Holies, and he's going to declare himself as God. He's going to set up an image of himself as God, and he's going to tell people, you're going to worship me, or you're going to be dead. And the people are going to be afraid of him, at the same time surrendering to him. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, three and a half years. It opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. He's not only blaspheming the people on earth, he's yelling at those of us that have been raptured. He's going after everybody. And what we're going to see, it continues, and it says, He was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and all authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and those who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for endurance 
and faith of the saints. The, the, the Antichrist, he's going to blaspheme the people that have been raptured. He, he's going to be lashing out at everybody. And what John tells us, what God tells us through John is, look, saints are going to have to persevere because from this point on, you're dead. If you're a believer in Jesus, you will be crucified. You'll be killed. You'll be martyred for the cause. You have to persevere. Don't take what he's telling you. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now notice the first beast came from the sea. This one comes from the earth. It has two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. This third person that we're introduced to is someone who looks like a lamb. He's gentle. He's well-liked. He seems to not be threatening at all. He's approachable. He, he has this incredible ability to persuade and to speak. They're different in origin. One came out of the sea. One comes from the land. They're different in rank because the Bible tells us this second person is going to be subservient to the first. So this is somebody that the Antichrist is going to use. It's going to be somebody who comes up from the evil sea. He'll be different in appearance, but he's going to be more like a lamb. He's going to seem like he's not that bad of a deal. The two horns could express that he's a lamb and has two horns, but it more likely expresses that he'll have power in two realms, likely religious and political. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound has healed. This person is going to be a religious person who points everybody to worship the Antichrist. He is going to live for the sole purpose of bringing glory to the Antichrist. Who does that sound like to you? The Holy Spirit of God. The, he exists to bring glory to Jesus. What we're seeing here is this grotesque replication, parody of the Trinity. You have Satan as the father. You have the Antichrist as the son. And now you have this, what's called false prophet, as the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that everything that God does, Satan tries to do in the end times. And it says he's going to carry a lot of authority. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs, it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. We have this gross replication of the Trinity. We have this world scene at the end of tribulation. The Antichrist, Satan, and this religious leader are going to deceive everyone. The beast rising out of the sea, the beast rising out of the land, out of the land. The dragon, the, Satan, is the anti-father. The beast rising from the sea, that's the anti-Christ. And the beast rising from the land is the anti-Holy Spirit. And what happens is an image of the Antichrist is brought into the Holy of Holies. And the false prophet tells people to worship. They will believe that the Antichrist is their Messiah because he died, he resurrected, he's brought peace to the world. And at this moment, he's going to turn on everybody, particularly the Jewish people. And it, you sit there and you think, well, how could this happen? How could the entire world fall under the worship of a man and the devil? But there's a couple things about fallen man that we need to recognize. One is we have this religious impulse. 
We have this desire to be involved in a religion. It's just a human thing. It's weird. We also have this innate desire to want to reject God. Okay, now you would think those would be two opposite things, but what if a religion was rejecting God? That resonates with many, many people. I can be religious, I can do what I want to do, and I can reject God. And we're going to see that will be the primary faith in the end times. And the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed, catch this, to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. This is going to be incredible. They're going to put an image of the Antichrist in the Holy of Holies, and then they're going to put life into it, it seems. They're going to figure out a way to make it look like it's breathing. Okay, now we saw that somewhere else where something was created and life and breath went, anyway. And so what we're going to see is now people are going to be going, whoa. And they're going to fall down and worship. And if they don't, they're going to be killed. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. At this point, everyone is going to be forced to take the mark of the beast. Okay, it's going to be on the forehead or on the right hand. Why? Because the Jewish priests carried God's word on their forehead. They carried it wrapped around their right wrist. Satan is mimicking everything God does. God sealed his 144,000 on their foreheads. Satan is going to try to put his mark on their foreheads or on their right hand. If they don't have that mark, they will not be able to function in society. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. In other words, if you're on earth at this time and you haven't taken the mark of the beast, now's the time to really engage what you need to do. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man and its number is 666. Now it was a common concept in the ancient world in Greek and Hebrew that letters were assigned a numerical value. And so that every person had not only a name, but a number based on their name. Okay, for example, in tombs of Pompeii, there's graffiti written on the wall. And it says, I love her whose number is 545. It sounds so romantic. <laughs> I love you, 545. This has led to enormous speculation about who the Antichrist could be. Let me tell you what I think. We have no idea. No idea. Seven is the number of completion. Six is the number of incompleteness. Three is a complete number. So three sevens, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Maybe three sixes represent this gross parody of the Trinity that falls short. That's not the real deal. The letters of Jesus, in case you're wondering, in Greek add up to 888. And maybe the satanic counterpart is 666, uh, as Satan tries to mimic him. Eight being greater than perfect, right? Seven, seven, seven is perfect, complete. Eight is beyond that. And then we get back to the last player in this group. So we, we have the Antichrist. We have the false prophet. We have the two witnesses for God on the other side. And now John tells us about these 144,000 that we've been talking about who were sealed. Remember, he said, seal them, don't touch them. I'm going to use them later. Well, now is when they come back into the scene. 
Jesus is returning now to the Mount of Olives, his second coming. Remember, the first one is the rapture. We go to meet him. This time he's coming back to judge, to bring his army, and to destroy these, basically the Antichrist, the false prophet, and to throw them into the lake of fire. Okay, so Jesus is returning. We hear this, Revelation 14. I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem. Mount of Olives, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. What is this? This is the throne of God now being brought to earth. Remember in the throne of God, there were people with harps. There was loud thunder. There was the voice of thunder. Now we're seeing on earth God's presence physically coming back to earth. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. These 144,000 we last saw in Revelation 7. They were identified as a group of Jewish believers who would minister during the Great Tribulation. They would be speaking God's truth. They were protected during that period, and now the Tribulation is coming to an end, and guess what? They're alive, standing there, just like God said they would be, and there to welcome Jesus back to earth. The beast has not defeated the 144,000, although he's tried now for seven years. The voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder, that's the voice of God. We heard that at the throne. And I heard the sword of heart, the sound of harpists. We heard that at the throne as well. And because these are described as first fruits, what he's telling you is these witnesses have been effective. And millions of people, millions of Jewish people will come to know Jesus as the Messiah because these people have carried out what God's asked them to carry out. So the stage is set here. We've got... Jesus against evil. We've got the preliminary bout going on where we've got the Antichrist and the false prophet uh, and, and we've got Satan. And on the other side over here, we have these two witnesses and 144,000, but they got an ace in the hole who's coming to destroy the entire thing and to set things right. And the stage is set now. We're at the end of the tribulation. Jesus is on his way back. Remember, he's coming to bring wrath, to judge the world. And by now, the people left on the planet are those that have actively, completely, and totally rejected him. And just like God did in Genesis, all the way through the book, he's just working out his plan, one piece at another, to bring things back to the place where he originally created them, where man can be restored with God, and man can have a relationship with God the way that we were originally designed to do so. He's revealed to us not only what is to come, but who is to come. And we're going to see the seven final judgments are horrific. Jesus will return to earth at Armageddon. And here's the incredible part. We'll be coming back with him. 
That's great. Just let your mind wrap yourself around that. Okay? At some point, we're going to be snatched away up to heaven. And when Jesus comes back and these 144,000 are waiting on him, guess who's with him? We are. And we will return with him. We will be his army, but we're not going to fight. Jesus doesn't need us to fight. He's going to defeat Satan with his word. And we're going to see that play out as we move towards the end of the tribulation period and end times. But there's one question for us as we close this. At this point in the battle, it's really clear that there's only two choices. Nothing's really changed, by the way. When you sit here tonight, there's really only two choices. You see, there's no middle ground with Jesus. He didn't give us that choice. You are either right now worshiping him, following him, surrendered to him, and destined to spend eternity with him, or you are headed, unfortunately, away from him, against him, and towards hell. There is no doubt about it. There's no middle ground. There's no, I'm going to stand on the fence and decide later. Okay? You don't know that you have later. And so when we read Revelation, we can read Revelation and we can stay in Revelation and go, wow, that's going to be really hard for people to make a decision. The point of telling us what's going to happen is to get us to make a decision. You see, God didn't have to reveal to us what's going to happen. Why, why would he tell us? Well, the only reason he would tell us is so that we can make a decision based on what he's telling us. And I don't know where you are with God. I don't know what brought you here. I don't know what's going on in your life. But I do know one thing. There's no way you straddle the line when it comes to Jesus. And as we read Revelation and we see that the world is being split, it's no different. God's just defining it. Right now, in this world and probably in this room, there are people who are clearly following Jesus. And there are people who've been deceived who are not. And in the end times, all God's going to do is just make it real clear who's on which side. And allow us to make a decision. So my preference would be that we all spend some time making a decision now because it would be a heck of a lot easier and it would make our lives so much more fulfilled. So what I want to do is I want to pray for us. And I don't know where you are. You may be really far from God. You may think you have to clean yourself up. You may, have to, you may think that you're not worthy of God. But I'm just going to tell you that, that he met all of us when we were still sinners. And he met all of us when we were seriously screwed up. And it was his desire that all of us come to know him. And he's going through the entire revelation process to get us to turn to him. So I want you to think about what Jesus did for you. To think about what he did on the cross. To think about if, if he came back tonight... Would you be raptured and gone, or would you be sitting here trying to figure out what just happened? And maybe he doesn't come back tonight. Maybe you pull out here on the street, and your life is over. Are you going to be with Jesus, or are you going to be apart from Jesus? You see, just like Satan, the angels had free will. So do we. The story of the Bible is we get what we choose. Let's pray. God, I know that tonight... Uh, within the sound of my voice, whether online or in this room or however you decide to get this out, God, that there are people who have not decided what to do. And yet, God, we are clearly in the end times. We, we know it. We can feel it. We see it. We know you're coming back. We know these things are true. Something in us just tells us it's true. It seems fantastic in a weird way. It almost seems impossible. But there's a part of us just going, wow, this is, this is actually true. And so, God, right now, if there's anybody in this room and you're speaking to them, that voice you're hearing is God. And he's just saying, it's true. And you don't have to know everything. You just have to surrender. I just pray that you would pray this prayer to God with me. 
God, look, I, I'm not perfect. I am messed up. I'm screwed up. I've made so many mistakes. I've made so many things, so many things I've done against you. And yet, God, you tell me that you still love me, that Jesus still died for me. And I can't earn my way back to you. I don't deserve a relationship with you. But for some reason, you love me and you created me. And you came here to take my place and to take my punishment for me. And I don't understand it, but I believe it. And so, God, to the best of my ability tonight, I just give my life to you. I just surrender myself to you. To the best I know how, God, it, uh, no longer am I going to live for me. I'm going to learn about you. I'm going to surrender to you. And, God, I need your help. So would you help me, God, to begin to build a relationship with you? I'm so sorry that I have sinned. I'm so sorry I've turned against you. But I am so grateful that Jesus loves me anyway and took my place. And from this day forward, I'm going to put my faith in him instead of me. And I pray that with all my heart in Jesus' name. Amen.